everyone, and welcome into the New England Ski Journal's Base Camp Podcast. I am your host, Eric Wilber. I'm joined by Mike Speechin, right here to my left. Hello, Mike. What's going on, Eric? It is ski season. Well, yes, of course it is. It is of, ski season. Of course. Well, we we talked we talked this summer about bikes and rafting and stuff like that. It's just exciting to be back to actually be in the in the midst of ski season again. It's a different feeling, isn't it? Even if you're not skiing, which I know you're not because of your knee situation, having surgery done on it. You can feel the excitement. You can feel the vibe. And I, I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is it a matter of, look, well, I know why you had the knee surgery done at this particular time, but are you, I guess, are you itching to get out there the more you see people getting out there now? Or is it kind of just comforting knowing that your, your eyes are on the finish line for whatever that this rehab may be done? Uh, yeah. You know what? I'm not, December and January have never been exciting months for me to ski. Uh, sun's lower in the sky. Normally, we're not getting the snow. So that part of it's nothing. Right now, it, it really is focused on getting, keeping my core strong, keeping the legs strong. The beauty of having a bike and being able to spin. So many friends have asked me, why in the world? Did you have your knee done right before Thanksgiving? Right. And honestly. It was kind of what I asked you. But. Yeah, you asked me the same thing. It's because I don't want to give up windsurfing season, surfing season. I don't want to give any, up anything. And I honestly don't travel much during the holidays. So one month rehab. My wife, my wife had to go to the pre-op meeting because she didn't believe me that the doctor said you will have no problem after a full knee mm -hmm. of being back on the hill in a month and a half. Wow. So when you get back out there, what are the first things you're going to, like how do you go right into steeps or are you going to be? You know, Corbett's. Corbett's? Yeah. Okay. I, I had to Jackson Perfect. and launch. <laughs> if, if you don't send it, right? All right, I know. Now, the, the first days will be a carving ski. I've got a brand new head super shape and that will be just, rolling back and forth, feeling it under underneath. Will you be limited at all? I don't, you know what? I don't think so. Okay. It. I don't want to be in the Sierra cement, but at the same time on groomers these days, you get out there first thing in the morning. I'll go up to Waterville and, and catch 10 runs in a row well before lunch because that lift is so fast. Mm -hmm. And that's what I do. I, if I need a quick fix, I'll go into Waterville and just friggin' let them run. Are you going to have to hold yourself back? You know what I mean? Like, are you going to take one run and say, well, that feels great. I'm ready for this. And do you kind of have to mentally prepare yourself to, at least in the beginning, take the long road? No. I know my body so well. Mm -hmm. And I can feel when I'm on or not on. And... As, as soon as I, I will make a boatload of turns. It's top to bottom turns. Take it until you start to feel it, relax, and then at, go home and ice the living crap out of it. It's just the spinning on the bike right now, everything feels phenomenal. I My doctor told me he had somebody on the hill skiing from a full knee last year, one month after surgery. Wow. And things have changed now. It's not what it was 15, 20 years ago. And 
I'm in shape, so I'm ready to go. Yeah, it really isn't. I mean, I know it brought up Aaron Rodgers in the last episode, but there was another football player recently that came back from an injury, and it was less than a year. And it wasn't because of steroids or any sort of like crazy drug-induced whatever. It was that the rehab has gotten so much better that we, over the decades, have learned so much more about our bodies and how they recover that debilitating injuries that were one thing 10 years ago aren't that anymore. If you tear your ACL now, it used to be a year plus to recover. Now it's nine months, right? Tommy John surgery. You're seeing pitchers in baseball come back from that faster than ever. And in some cases, they're they're pitching better than ever. Chris Sale, we'll, we'll, we'll put him aside. But the rest of them, it, it's, it's an improvement in sort of this performance. So kudos to you. I don't want you to rush it. I want you to take your time and I want you to fully heal it. But I think at the same time, you are optimistic at what it's going to take. Just don't push it. No, it's, I'm not going to be sending it. The first first few weeks or whatever, it's going to be on, on carving skis, just letting them run. Skis are so good, and I've got n- no issues. I'm, I'm in good shape. Awesome. So, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, we, we were talking – I can't believe we're into Christmas. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. I, I don't know. We started this weekly stuff again. We've been doing this podcast for a year and three months or whatever. It's, it's yeah. been that long. I mean, but we're talking Christmas. We talked a little bit about heated socks and stuff. Right. Yes. But we're getting down to the wire here with people going, what do I get, Eric? What do I get, Mike? <laughs> You know what I mean? The skiers in, in your household. Oh, I'm going to interrupt you for yeah. one second. Because at Christmas time, when I tell you, as a skier, I want socks, and you buy me socks, I will love you. I don't think that's a secondary gift. You buy me a pair of Don Tufts. You buy me a pair of, 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 of Smart Wills. You buy me a pair of whatever kind of ski, ski or socks. He, or the heated one. Go big for Eric. Or... Maybe we'll see. I'm not, I'm not, despite our conversation, I'm not sold yet. So that, that's a to be determined. But if you buy me socks for Christmas, that's cool. It's not like buying dad a tie for Father's Day. Buy me socks, please. Go ahead, continue. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I, I just, if I have one more family member say, well, I really I feel really bad about buying you socks. Like, no, they're $20 socks. Feel good about it. Continue. Well, well I just wanted to throw some Christmas ideas out there for people. Excellent. Um, that don't know what to get that skier. There are a a couple businesses out there. One's called Ski the East Mm -hmm. and one's called TGR, Teton Gravity Research. We had Todd Jones on. Uh, There's all sorts of cool things. So if you have a skier in your family, they love stuff like that. Let me tell you, it's it's synonymous with skiing. One one thing on that note, I, I spoke with during the country ski show when you were doing boots. I was doing a podcast. Remember that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And a representative from TGR was on, and he was saying about how the goose hats. Goose? Yep. Goose. Goose is the new fish, the new Grateful Dead, whatever. They can't keep those hats in stock. They're so popular, which speaks to the popularity of the brand. Of, of the brand and the band. Just, I, I found that interesting that the goose, the Grateful Dead collabs they had are, were, were in stock, but the goose, even if you go to their website, it's nothing there. Like they can't keep it in stock, which is just uh, amazing. Go ahead. Well, I'm going to add some other stuff on here. Even, even kids. I, I remember when I got my son, his first piston bully, his only piston bully, the little toy yeah. snowcat. 
Well, check out the New England Ski Museum because they have all sorts of cool things, gift ideas for the house, but also for that skier. I've always been a big fan. I stop in there, whether it in North Conway or at the original at Cannon. A great spot to see stuff. The other spot you could look at is the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. Um, I've got a bunch of pieces, different things from them in my house, trying to support uh, something really cool. But to any of the listeners looking for last-minute gifts, those are two places you can go and find them. They are. And I, I get the New England Ski Journal, New England Ski Journal, the New England Ski Museum catalog uh, twice a year. And that's always a fun little thing to peruse. And it's got great gift ideas in there. Anyway, today, who do we have on the show? Well, we have tried very hard to keep everything New England based. And and today is no exception. No exception. No exception. We're bringing on a friend, somebody who became world renowned. In fact, for a crash into a tree, I believe at one point. (laughs) But Grew up down in Connecticut, went to Stratton Mountain School. Where her parents are instrumental in finding in founding it. Yep. So it's, and, it's great. And world-renowned Warren Miller star, Kim Reichelm. Kim Reichelm. She will be on the podcast momentarily, right after this. Welcome back to the Basecamp Podcast. Joining us on the Zoom line from Baja is uh, noted big mountain skier, Kim Reichelm. And uh, she's going to chat with us about uh, Ski with Kim, about uh, her her days uh, as a big mountain skier and everything else. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate you asking me to be a part of it. Oh, Kim, we're excited. We're jealous, of course, right now because we're really not fully um, skiing at this point. Oops, scratch that. This isn't (laughs) running right now. Kim, we're really excited. Uh, to have you join us. I'm personally jealous of you being in Baja surfing, and I'm not. But other than that, welcome aboard. Can you share a little background? You're a New England girl. Tell us some background of where you came from, uh, your background here in New England. Well, I grew up in Connecticut. And when I was three, my younger brother, Todd, had just been born. He was a baby. And my older brother, Scott, was five. And my father just decided that we were going to be a skiing family and loaded up the car from Connecticut and we drove up to Vermont. And I don't really remember these days, but my dad told me the story that we went over the first couple of weekends to a couple of different Southern Vermont ski resorts. And my dad just wasn't that happy with the service and was concerned about the safety of us as little kids until we went to Stratton. We got to Stratton. This was like 1963. And he just loved it. He loved the mountain, the hospitality, the way the lift ops were really courteous and helpful getting us on and off the lift and really felt a warm greeting from them. He actually told me a story that he went to buy tickets for the family and said to the person selling tickets, how can I be sure that my family is going to have a great time here after I spent all this money on lift tickets? And the gentleman said, Mr. Eichelm, you go take your family skiing, here are your lift tickets, and you have a good day. You can come back and pay for them at the end of the day. So needless to say, we had a great day and became a Stratton skiing family from that point on. The funny story is that that he decided after a couple more weeks to purchase a bond through Stratton Mountain and for $3,000 was, was able to buy 
lifetime passes, which really didn't stay as lifetime passes. But for many, many right. years, the entire family got season passes um, because of my dad's commitment to the resort. That's awesome. That's amazing. And then your parents were instrumental in creating and founding Stratton Mountain School, correct? They were. And it was a bit really my fault. <laughs> I was always an athlete. I was not great in school. I was very dyslexic and really struggled in the classroom. But I excelled as an athlete. And I was, I won in four square. I, I ruled kickball. I was the first to be picked on a team and the captain. And I really hung my hat on my athleticism. And that's where most of my self-confidence came from. So as a skier, I loved skiing. I loved the independence and the wind in my face and the exhilaration of skiing is different than any other sport. You have to control gravity and you have to control the speed versus generate it. Nobody has to kick the ball or hit the ball or you're, you're very independent. I just love that part of it. And I remember riding up the chairlift oftentimes and seeing the ski racers and recognizing the ski racers were really the best skiers on the mountain. And I said to one of my parents' friends who was taking me for a ski, and I said, you see those guys? That's the ski team. Those are the best skiers on the mountain. I'm going to be a ski racer someday. And I basically dragged my whole family into ski racing. It started with peewee races that they had every Saturday at Stratton Mountain on the Sun Tanner Trail. And I signed up to race in a peewee race, and I was hooked from that point on and slowly became a part of the Stratton Ski Educational Foundation and raced as a three and four with T.D. McCormick. And we had uh, just a pack of kids. I mean, we were a tribe. We had so many kids ski racing in, in the junior league that we had Stratton East and Stratton West. And I just loved it. I loved everything about ski racing, the camaraderie, the team, the coaching, the, the challenging aspect of it. And it got to a point where my parents just couldn't manage me anymore. I was so possessed by skiing and ski racing and traveling and racing a lot. And my parents were getting tired of driving me to ski races and dealing with, with not enjoying their own ski experience. And at the time, there were other athletes older than I was that were just making the U.S. ski team. And their parents were starting a tutorial program, discussed it with my parents, and my parents allowed our home at Stratton to be one of the, the places where the athletes could stay. So when I was 12, I started attending the Stratton Mountain School winter tutorial program, living in my parents' home with a number of other Great ski racers, Abby Fisher, Holly Clark, Sarah McNeilis, all East Coast ski racers from the early 70s. And the rest is history. The, the school grew to be a fully recognized tutorial ski academy and Stratton Mountain School was born. So it wasn't just my parents, but definitely a big part of helping get the, the school off the ground. It became a truly renowned school for putting great ski racers like Pam Fletcher and so on out there. I mean, a lot of, I mean, when I was, my graduating class was 18 at the time, it was the biggest graduating class of Stratton Mountain School and eight of us were on the U.S. ski team. So, yeah. And that was before cross country and snowboarding sure. and, and all the other aspects of skiing was even in play. It was just basically ski racing. Before Jake Burton put Stratton on the map in a different way. Exactly. 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 Powers and a lot of other phenomenal snowboarders. So I got to ask you, after 
all that love you just professed for ski racing, why'd you give it up for Big Mountain? Well, I didn't really give it up. They gave up on me. So I was racing Europa Cup and I was a skinny, gangly, inexperienced international ski racer. And one of the great things about going to Stratton Mountain School was it was a phenomenal, they had a phenomenal coaching staff. I mean, they, we would sit down in the beginning of the season and talk about our goals, where we wanted to go, when we wanted to peak, what were the most important times and really come up with a plan for the season. And in that process, I really respected my coaches and my coaches knew when to be hard on me and when to be soft on me. And if when I was slacking, they'd come to me and say, hey, you set these goals. You said you wanted to make it to U.S. nationals. Well, you're not going to make it if you keep behaving like this. It's time to buckle up and set, get after it. And that was a really positive learning coaching environment. When I made the U.S. ski team, it wasn't quite the same. And there's hundreds of stories just like this where the coaching wasn't phenomenal. The organization was subpar. And I was cocky and independent and outspoken and certainly not very good at kissing ass. And I got over to Europe. And the next thing I know, they're saying, you're going to run downhill. And I'm like, no, I'm not running downhill. I'm not ready to run downhill. My goal is to make it to the 1980 Olympics and to race in the World Cups at Stratton. So this is in the late 70s. And they said, you'll run downhill whether you like it or not. You're going to do what we tell you to do. And I kind of went, yeah, no. I I have a plan and it's not going to get her running downhill when I don't have any experience. In hindsight, I could have, I should have been a downhiller. I grew a lot and through my big mountain ski and obviously had, I had the right head for it. But at that time I wasn't ready and I wasn't willing to let the U.S. ski team put me in a body cast when I didn't have the experience. So by telling my coach to basically fuck off, <laughs> I, I I was dropped from the ski team at the peak of my career. Well, looking back now, some, sometimes things happen for a reason. Absolutely. And, and so you went big mountain and we, there's a lot of great big mountain skiers, female especially, that came out of New England. I mean, some really good ones. Um, so how did you parlay into the big mountain side then? What, what was the first event? How did you sort of hone that skill? The best part about being dropped from the ski team is that I went to college. I went to college in Boulder. I was on a ski racing scholarship and I raced for CU for four years. And during that time period, I really knew in the back of my head that I wanted to race professionally. And lucky for me, women's pro ski racing was at its peak. And I utilized my studies in college to figure out how to make money being a pro ski racer. So I rolled out of college into a pro ski racing career, which I did in the early 80s. And still at that point, Big Mountain Free Ski didn't exist. I think that the Delorier brothers and the Egans were making some movies. Greg Stump was making some movies back then, but it wasn't really on the map. If you were in a Warren Miller movie or a faceless name that, that basically skied in a commercial. But after I finished racing professionally, I was working in broadcasting and I was still traveling on the tour as a reporter and a color analyst for ESPN. And during that time, I all of a sudden realized I didn't have to train anymore. For the first time, I'm riding up a chairlift and looking down at the girls training. I'm like, oh my God, I don't have to train. I don't have to run gates. The first time in probably 25 years. So instead of looking down at the race course, I started looking up 
looking up at the mountains and looking at the terrain and looking at little nooks and crannies and finding places that nobody else had skied and watching skiers hike ridges. And so it was kind of a natural progression for me to just challenge my own skiing through skiing the whole mountain. And at that time, at one time I was at Squaw Valley and Bruce Benedict was a friend of mine. He was a photographer and he had shot a bunch of photos of me when I was putting my portfolio together to, to race professionally. And he was there with Schmidt and Plake and Hattrip, and they were shooting Blizzard of Oz. And Bruce invited me to go ski with the boys just to hang out and get a feel for it. And he wanted, Greg Stump wasn't there, but he wanted to get some footage of me to show Greg what kind of skier I was. So the following year, I shot License to Thrill. And it was from being in License to Thrill that I got invited to go to the first World Extreme Skiing Championships in Alaska, and that was 1991. So it was sort of a natural progression for me. Having not reached my fullest potential as a ski racer, I still had that hunger. I still wanted to just push myself. It wasn't so much that I was looking for notoriety or win any contests. I just love skiing. I love pushing myself, and Big Mountain was, was a great way to do it. Without all the restrictions of ski racing, the coaching, the politics, a lot of things that I didn't really jive with. The big mountain free skiing was independent. They flew you up to the top of the mountain and said, go for it. Ski any line you want. And it was just a really fun way to, to, to be involved in skiing without the, the rigmarole that comes with ski racing. Sure. And you go on to become a two-time world extreme skiing champion. I think one of my, well, I watched over the weekend, excuse me, the, your appearance on David Letterman for, was it 91 or 92, I guess? Um, I think it was 1990. So it was before. 1990. Before the, the yeah. okay. Okay. So I'm watching that and I'm thinking, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry, let me start that over. I'm watching that and I'm thinking, first of all, Kim is so very, you were very straightforward at a very young age about what you were doing, even though you had just been thrust on David Letterman, right? It seemed like, there was no big eyes. Like you seemed fit for the moment. And it was a great conversation because of that. And the other part of it was, I think that, that Letterman kind of respected what you did, but at the same time was trying to twist this to the audience. Like, okay, here's this woman falling down a mountain. Let's all laugh. How was it to try to explain the extreme big mountain movement to a general audience like that, especially when you're on something like Letterman? It was, it was definitely challenging. And it was at the beginning I didn't have a lot of footage of me skiing in film, so I just gave them license to thrill, thinking that they were going to show some footage of me skiing, and then we were going to talk about the wipeout, and then they were going to show the wipeout. And then I'm standing there with the woman that recruited me, and Letterman has hyped me up all night long. It's George Carlin and Timothy Hutton, and Letterman's going, did you meet the extreme skier? Did you meet the extreme skier? And those two guys, they didn't want to have anything to do with me. I don't, I'm here to talk about myself, not, not the extreme skier. So then when he hyped me, I was the last guest and he said, check this out. And then it's this horrendous fall. And he looks at the camera and goes, that's it. Like, this is what you're showing of this. And I'm standing there going, and the studio audience is dead quiet. Mm -hmm. The woman that recruited me goes, shit, it's the wrong clip and goes racing off to the editing room to, to, to yell at the boys who are probably just, their asses off. I'm sure they thought that was the funniest thing ever. 
I'm standing there going, I'm not going out there. Nothing is happening. And somebody comes up and pushes me and goes, you've got to go out there. I'm like, stop going out there. So finally I walk out and I shake David Letterman's hand. And the very first thing I say to him is that is the worst introduction I've ever had in my life. So I think I might have put him on a little bit of a guard. And I think he sort of agreed that that was the, not the best intro. So we were, we started off on a pretty good foot with me being honest with him about that was, that was all. And I was embarrassed. It wasn't really what I was looking for to start something as phenomenal as being on David Letterman. But he did slow into asking some good questions. He was kind of asked layman's terms. He didn't know what terrain meant. And he thought I was right. Yeah. Yep. But he was funny and interesting and very kind to me. And I had seen Letterman before. He can be pretty tough, especially on female athletes back right. in those days. Which is why I was so impressed that yeah, at such a young age, you were so composed in that chair. So, I mean, it, it spoke a lot about your personality. You try right. to you be humble and, and he, it, we were all good. And even we had a couple of commercials and we chit-chatted during the commercials. And I, I think he liked me. And I think that he felt that I wasn't there to prove to be somebody that I wasn't. And I did eat a big old humble pie before I walked out there. So it was a, we complimented one another in that. That's, that's, that's awesome. So we have had on, we've had on Mike Hattrop, Glenn Plake, Eric Delorier, John Egan. I mean, these are all guys that really created a movie scene out there through Warren Miller or Stump or whoever. But we've also had Lynn Weiland and Noelle Lyons and you on. What, what was the difference back then? Because women trying, women never got the same shake as men originally in the skiing world. How did, how did you guys break that barrier? Because all of you broke it. Um, I think for me, when I went to the first worlds in Alaska, there was only three women. And I didn't, I didn't even think to get it. I was going to get a trophy. Like we weren't running a separate group. We're mixed in the guys. And in 1991 in Valdez, that event was more like a festival. Uh-huh. We were all on the same playing field. We were all a little bit out of our element. We were skiing terrain. We had never skied before. We were all a little bit nervous. I know that for me, I had never worn a beacon or been in a helicopter. So again, similar to the Letterman thing, I was humble. I knew that I didn't know that much. And guys like Doug Coons, of course, did. So I relied on the people that were much smarter than me, that knew more, that had more experience. One of the people that was instrumental in my entire big mountain career was a guy named Dave Hamry. And Dave was snow safety director for the contest. And I was like, he's the smartest guy in the room. If I stay close to Dave Hamry, I'm going to be safe. So I really sort of aligned myself with people that had more experience, asked a lot of questions, paid attention, and uh, just tried not to do anything stupid. So for myself, I think that I established a good reputation and rapport with all the guys right from the start. And then when I came home from Alaska, I immediately went to Crested Buttes, and we had to hold a contest like this. This I just went to the most fun ski event I've ever been to in my life. And Gina Croft and Bob Gillen and John Norton got on board right away and copyrighted the U.S. Free Skiing Championships. And the ball started rolling. And I was really, at that time, I had already started my business, Women's Ski Adventures. And I recruited Noel. And I, I recruited every single girl I could find that was a good skier, that was off the U.S. ski team or had great ski background to be a part of this event. And again, it wasn't like us against them. It was like, this is a festival. 
this is a way to express your passion for skiing in a way that you've never done before. And I was high from that first year for, for three months. That's all I could talk about was skiing in Alaska. So I think that every, we all knew when it did change, it got more competitive as we got more women. Unfortunately, in a judged contest, it can be a little bit chatty. Sometimes when you don't win, but you think you should win, you, you think you, you, you were robbed for some reason or another. And I always really tried to remind people of why we were there and what we were doing and, and that it was for the joy and the passion of skiing and being safe and looking out for one another and not necessarily winning a trophy. And I didn't compete in Alaska after the first year for a few years because I was working so hard running women's ski adventures that I wasn't skiing at that level. I knew that to go back to Alaska, now that I'd done such a good job recruiting, that in order to win again, I was going to have to ski hard all the time, ski outside of my comfort zone all the time. And I just wasn't doing that. I was skiing with a bunch of intermediate women in ski resorts. And then it really wasn't until 1995 that I went through a bad breakup and was a little bit dysfunctional emotionally and psychologically. And I decided that the best way for me to heal was to start competing again. So I hired a young couple to help me run my business, and I just started training really hard, just working out all the time and skiing really hard. And I went to Alta every chance I had and just skied runs blind top to bottom and focused on getting back to that level. And I knew because I had judged the contest for the last three years, I knew what level I was going to have to ski at to beat the girls that were had now been competing since the beginning. So I think that the combination of running my business women's ski adventures and dealing with people that deal with fear all the time and insecurities and, and taking my knowledge and experience in Alaska and ski racing and building confidence with other skiers helped me, me be really compassionate towards other skiers as well. And although I wanted to win and I wanted to ski at the highest level, it wasn't what was most important to me. What was most important was the camaraderie and encouraging other people and being being there for everybody in the contest. And I think that helped all of us. I think it helped the girls unite and be there for one another and be proud of, of what we were doing and not so much about the trophy at the end of the day. How do you choose some of the locations for your, your guided ski? Boom, for your guided ski. Let me start that over. How do you choose some of the locations your guided skiing adventures goes to each year? It's it's funny. I um. I go where I want to go. I go where <laughs> I like that. You know, the best skiing is for that time of year. I, I, have, I lived in Crested Butte for a long time and would start my season in Crested Butte. Now I live in Aspen and I start my season in Aspen. I think Colorado and Utah are the best places to start the ski season because the snow is so dry and the weather is nice and, and it's just a great place to get, get things going. And then I go to Japan. And if you're a ski guide and you're not going to Japan from mid-January to mid-February. You're really not skiing the best snow in the world. And then I come back from Japan and I go to Utah and I spend a couple of weeks in Utah and then I go to Silverton and then I go to Alaska. I mean, Alaska is the place to be from mid-March to mid-April. So basically I follow the best snow and I go to the places where I want to go and I set up the schedule and put it on my website and just hope that people join me. And do they? Yes, they do. <laughs> kind of important. Well, I've been at it for 35 years. 
And I'm really lucky that I don't have a lot of competition, which surprises me. I just, there, there are very few people doing what I do. And it's not just, you know, a ski clinic. It's, it's clinic. It's experiential. What I'm teaching is the love for the sport in all aspects. So it's not just about having a great ski experience. It's about, well, the great ski, you know, ski experience is everything. It's, it's fine dining. It's, it's a fun apri ski spot. It might be dancing on tables in some fun bar or drinking glue vine in a little igloo in the middle of the Alps or so for me, when I create a trip, I'm trying to create passion for the sport in all aspects, not just to become a better skier. And the other thing that I do that's really important to me is I have a strong equipment aspect. So all my clients, we meet in a ski shop the first night and we go through our gear and we talk about our gear and I make sure that everybody's in good boots and on the right length ski. And throughout the four-day clinics, I might be changing. I might put a woman on a ski that's a little bit longer and she thinks, oh, I'm on short skis. It's going to be easier. And she doesn't know that if she skis a ski a little bit longer, she's actually going to have more balance, more control, more stability, and it's just as easy to turn. So things like that, the ski instructors aren't necessarily teaching. That's my goal is to create one people in general that walk away from skiing with me and say, that's the most fun I've ever had skiing. Sure. Amazing. Since I got you on the line here, I'm going to ask you for some tips. What are some early season tips you might share? with the audience, particularly New England skiers, from what you remember about us in the uh, early cold winter here? Yeah, it's, well, watch out for the crowds, first of all. I know people that have gotten hurt early season when you're skiing on what we call the white ribbon of death. Yes. Oh, it, hey. oh this, you know what? It, Eric talks about it all the time. <laughs> it's I'm not a big fan of the white ribbon of death. I like my skiing in March, not in November. Thank you. Yeah, it is. It's dangerous. So when you first go out, if you're going to ski early season, slow it down. Ski on narrower skis, ski on shorter skis. Just get your feet underneath you and don't try to set any big records right from the beginning, especially when there's no place to escape. If it's just a path of man-made snow and you've got trees and snowmaking and hazards all over the mountain, just slow it down. And then it's always good to take a lesson or even a half day where somebody can give you maybe three things to work on. Balance, stance, looking ahead, pole plant, some basic things so that when you're out there, you have skills to focus on. And then you build those skills, you build it through repetition. And then as we get more snow, you can go to a little bit wider ski, a little bit longer ski, start skiing a little bit faster, but your basics were already set. I mean, even at Stratton Mountain School, we did that. We did drills. We skied on our uphill ski. We skied on one ski. We did hop turns. We did skid turns. We did pivot turns. You do all these different things on your skis to build balance, coordination, timing, build your overall confidence and the connection between your legs and your feet and your boots and your skis. So then when it starts snowing and we have great conditions and you can let it go, you've got all those things in place. With that being said, Mentally speaking, how, how do you, how do you teach your clients to get over those mental hurdles that might be in front of them? Maybe it's fear of that, that steep head wall. How do you, what do you teach your clients? How do you teach them to get over it? Well, there's a couple of things I do. One is to understand that fear is what keeps us alive. 
If we didn't have fear, we'd be driving our cars like maniacs and jumping off cliffs and acting like a bunch of idiots and getting hurt. So fear is based off of what we don't know. I don't know if I can ski that steep terrain. I'm not sure I'm good enough. Well, you don't just say, just go for it. You got to bring it back. You got to make sure that that person has the skills to ski it so that they have the confidence. And women are very different than men. I mean, you guys, you have testosterone. You have the ability to just throw caution to the wind and and tear down anything. And as you get older, your testosterone starts to drop and you start getting actually a little bit more sensible and a little bit more careful. But when you're a little boy and you break your arm riding a bicycle, you're like, look, I broke my arm. Like it's a badge of honor. And women are like that. Women are much more careful. We're much more cautious. We are the reproducers. We are the people that have to take care of it. My clients are, my female clients are always worried about getting hurt. And it's because they have to take care of their kids and they have to take care of their husband and they have to run a household and they have carpool. Guys, they don't think about any of that stuff at all. They go, oh, if I break my leg, my wife will take care of me. (laughs) So it's very different between men and women. When I first started my business, it was a women's only program. And I continued to change as I became more of a big mountain skier, applying my big mountain skiing to co-ed trips and then the adventure trips, which are all co-ed as well. But with the women in particular, one, I need them to trust me. I need them to have confidence in me. And I have a lot of gatherings together. We do a welcome reception the first night and we have lunch together every day and we do dinners together. So we're hanging out and we're talking about life. We're talking about having kids, raising children, divorce, menopause, injuries. And in sharing these stories, you become more human. And it's about building trust. If I can get my clients to trust me, to believe in me, to to feel comfortable with me, then when I get out on the hill and I ask them to challenge themselves a little bit, it's not just some ski instructor in a fancy uniform telling them what to do. It's somebody that actually has blown out her knee and has dislocated her shoulder and knows what it's like to be injured. So I feel that I'm sympathetic to their fears. I also like to do everything in a progression. So if you come to me and say, I want to ski a steep run that's a double black diamond, I'm like, okay, let's go to something that's steep that isn't a double black diamond and make sure that you're in the front of your boots. Make sure on the tips of your skis, make sure you're well balanced and that you can control your speed. And then I might take them to a steep run and we'll traverse halfway in. So there'll only maybe be five steep turns and then it flattens out. This way they're not as fearful because they know that if they fall, they're not going to tumble all the way down. And it's just a process of building confidence through terrain features. I call it a terrain progression. I do this that same thing when I go heli skiing in Alaska. We start out and you have your A lines, your B lines, and your C lines. And we land on the sea lines. We land on the shoulder. We ski wide open glacier fields. We get used to getting in and out of the helicopter. We get used to turning on our airbags and turning them off and working as a unit and building our confidence, not only in the skiing and the train, but the environment and each other. And then as that confidence builds, we start going to slightly steeper terrain. And and it's much easier than taking somebody to the A-line first run and having them just shaking in their boots. And then they can't ski well. Nobody can ski well when they're afraid. So fear is just something that we overcome through practice. And you don't just dive right in. You go bit by bit. Right. Amazing. So I want to get the audience to be a little jealous of you, a little more jealous. You split (laughs) your time between a a little place called Aspen 
and a little place called Baja. Like, can you explain how you split the year between those two locales and how ridiculously awesome that is? Well, let's start by saying I didn't have children. So I do have a lot of ability to live more as a free spirit and not the responsibilities that come with having a family. I tried to have a family. I failed miserably. And once I got to the point when I was 40 and I realized I wasn't going to be a mom, I decided to kind of step it up, step it up in my skis, step it up in my business and be more adventurous and traveling to places and experiencing new things. I discovered Baja in the 80s and I just fell in love with it. I love the climate. I'm on the East Cape of the Baja. So all the way down in the southeastern tip of the Baja, it would be called the Cabo area. But my home is off the grid. I live on 100% solar power. I have a backup generator. My water is delivered in a truck that takes two hours to get here. And I'm here when the season ends in April. And I stay until the end of July when hurricane season starts. And then I throw out my storm shutters and I go to Chile. I spend the month of August skiing in Chile where I take clients as well. And usually I go to Portillo, but I travel around as well. Sometimes I go to Argentina. I do a little bit of heli skiing in Chile and Argentina as well. And then I usually wait for hurricane season to end. I go back east and visit my family and do some fishing with my brother. And I love to fish. I'm a big fly fisherman. So whenever I can, I try to hit some some great fly fishing adventures like the middle fork of the salmon and the snake. And I actually just got back from uh, fishing the, the Mississippi Delta for bull reds, which was fabulous. Awesome. And then once hurricane season ends, I come back down. So that's usually October. And I'm here from October until the new year. And then I go back to Aspen. So I'm here in Baja almost eight months a year. Wow. That's awesome. I, I'm telling you, I'm jealous. It's interesting when I love what I do. And honestly, after all these years, the skiing part isn't what I love as much as the clients. I love what I'm doing for people in skiing. It's it's incredibly rewarding. And sharing my passion and my experience and my knowledge with other people and turning them into passionate skiers is what really makes me high. But it's full on. It's breakfast, lunch, dinner. It's apres ski. It's dancing. Half my clients go to bed and the other half are up until two and I'm up all day, every day. My boots are on at 8.30 in the morning and I don't take them off until sometimes five o'clock at night. I'm eating and drinking and entertaining 24-7. And when I don't have a clinic, I have private lessons and I have journalists and I have people that I work with and I love it. But I come to Baja and I completely check out. I just, I my eyebrows grow together. I don't put on mascara. I don't dress up. I live in a salty bikini and I surf and I kite surf and I wing foil and I work on my house and, and work on my business and keep a pretty quiet lifestyle down here. That is more than fabulous. And my retirement's coming. I'm, I'm trying to get my wife to bite into it, but she's not. I told her I'll be gone for a month or two at a time. So with that being said, are there any spots open for people to still sign up for this winter? Or are you? Yes, definitely. My Aspen Women's Ski Adventures full, but I have a few other Women's Ski Adventures, both Snowmass and Alta. I have a couple spots for that. I'm doing something new the last three years where I'm doing these add-on days that are snowcat skiing or heli skiing. So on Aspen, 
If you want to add on a day of cat skiing, you might be interested in learning how to cat to, to powder ski. And people, again, aren't you want to learn how to ski powder, but you never get to. And then finally, it snows three feet and you're floundering around and nobody's there to teach you. So it's a great opportunity to do the four day women's ski adventure and then one day of cat skiing where I am there to help you and guide you and the four days before get ready for it. In Alta, I do a day with powder birds, a heli ski day after the women's ski adventure. And then also my steep skiing camp in Alta, which is a expert's trip, really for what we were talking about earlier, learning how to ski steeps and chutes and rocks and tight trees and navigate and negotiate really steep, challenging terrain. There's also another add-on day for heli skiing in Alta. And then this morning, I just had an entire group cancel for Japan. Oh, so, yeah, I almost had a heart attack. So my my middle week, I have three weeks planned in Japan that were sold out. And now all of a sudden I have a week, January 25 through 31 in Japan that's wide open. And I'm sitting on a condo and the whole thing. So if anybody wants to go to Japan with me, it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's a gift because you cannot, if you want to go to Naseko right now, you can't find a room in the place. Right. It's, it's busy. So if anybody wants to go to Japan, that's a good one. And I have a trip to Silverton, which is one day side country and three day heli. Um, and that has availability as well. And then Alaska in April. And I have a couple spots for my trip to Greenland in April as well. So most everything is pretty full, but I have spots here and there for some of my big adventures. It's interesting that the big trips, expert skiers like to wait and see how the conditions are going to be. But yep. Can't wait if you want to go heli ski. Right. Because if you wait until a month before it, there's nothing available. So if you, if you consume the Kool-Aid of, of big mountain skiing and powder skiing, you have to commit ahead of time to, to, to get on. I mean, people have been trying to get on for me with me for Japan. I spent the whole morning writing every single person that's asked about Japan and I've said no to try to sell these open seats because up until this point, I said it's sold out. You're, you're a shit out of luck right now. You, if you want to go to Japan, you got to j- plan it in July. Well, we, we were talking about Christmas gifts here just a few minutes ago before you came on. Any of the listeners, Eric and I are both available. I will, my knee will be ready to go. So if anybody that wants to send Eric and I a Christmas gift, Japan <laughs> would be perfect. Yes. That'd be fine. Right. I'll take I'll that. Throw, I'll throw my guide fee in for free. I think you just need to part of this because I'm I'm sorry, God. I, I, you come ski with me to Japan. You pay for the cost and I'll, and I'll guide you. Love it. I love that. I think you did just answer this a little bit, but you said if you want to go to Japan, you got to start thinking in July. So if people want to do trips with you, say in 2025, when should they start thinking about those? Now. Now. Okay. Good. What about 2026? I'm open for 2026. Okay. Good booked for 2025, but I have like people that contact me. This woman said, there's six of us. We want to go to Japan in 2025. What do we need to do? And so I've already blocked out a date for them, giving them ideas for accommodations. So it's not sad. I haven't taken any deposits, but, the, but that's as far as head as we should be starting to come together. Yeah. A year in advance is great, especially if you have your own group and you want to do something with me. And one of the things that I do with my program is I hire the best of the best everywhere I go. I know I don't know everything. I know I'm from a snow safety standpoint or some of the avalanche mitigation. That's not my forte. My forte is to take care of people. 
And in doing so, I hire the best guys I can find. And those guys not only are the most experienced people for that location, but they also know the little holes in the wall and the great little ice cream shop or the best sushi place or ramen place or things like that. So if you're on your own, and really, I kind of design my program for people that don't have a group. They love to ski, but your wife doesn't like to ski anymore. And she'd rather do something else, go on a spa or a yoga retreat. And you can come on a trip with me and be surrounded by like-minded, fun people. Everything will be taken care of. You're going to ski really hard, have a lot of fun, but not be by yourself. You're going to have people to have a glass of wine with or go for a little hike. Or my Portillo trip, I'm always splitting it up. I'll wake up in the morning and say, okay, who wants to do what? My my guide, Chino, he wants he's going to do a hike up that high ridge. You guys are going to take two warm-up runs, and then you're going to hike and make a big run off the top, and we're all going to meet for lunch. And then there's another group. And so I really try to mix it up and give people what they need and offer something for everybody, but always have a team with me that's, that's extremely knowledgeable and safety conscientious and can take care of my guests. And anyone who's interested in finding out more can go to your website to find trips and costs and all that information? Skiwithkim.com. Excellent. Fantastic. Well, Kim, uh, it's it's been a pleasure, to say the least. Hopefully, Aspen gets great snow this year for you in the West, and hopefully some of that mammoth snow from last year hits New England because we need it. I hope so. My whole family skis in New England. My niece is at Middlebury, and my brother and his, my brother Scott races Masters at Stratton, and Everybody in my family skis in Vermont and Stratton, so there's nothing better for me for, than for them to have great skiing days as well. So I wish you guys the best and everybody in New England. I hope you get tons of snow and just have an awesome winter. Well, thank you very much. You can check out more from Kim Reichelm at skiwithkim.com. Get a whole list there of all the adventures she's planning this year and check out more information there. Kim, thank you so much. This was excellent. My pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me to be a part of this. All right. Oh, that, is, that is Kim Reichelm, and we'll be right back right after this. Eric, Kim Reichelm, I, I still remember the clip from License to Thrill. It's one of those things that you just don't forget, scenes from movies that we all loved. But what she has accomplished, somebody from down in, I believe, Westport, Connecticut, down in that neck of the woods, becoming world-renowned. And what she's doing today with Ski with Kim is just absolutely amazing because she's really about the customer, about the skier. Yeah, you you listen to her talk about it. The passion that she has for her business really shines through. And, and, and the, the way it has emerged into just from female-only clinics into co-eds and the fact that... You, it's so popular. The fact that you got to plan ahead a year in advance to 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 talk to her about it, to be able to go skiing with Kim, uh, it, it's a it's a great way to connect with our skiing past in a way, right? To to ski with a two time extreme world champion would be awesome. Yeah, it would be. I mean, would you rather be on a cruise ship, <laughs> or would you rather go ski with Kim? I mean. I, I, I don't even think that's a question mark. I, well, I think Kim spoke for my family alone when she said sometimes the wife doesn't like to ski. And in, in my case, it's my wife has never liked to ski. So it's about finding different activities for both of you. And we as a family have done that pretty well because I take the kids out skiing, which gives mom a free day all the time. But 
it's true. Like if you're preparing a trip away and one of you doesn't ski as much, there's got to be something to, there's got to be some sort of attraction for the whole kit and caboodle, not just the, the, just the, the, the time you spend skiing down the mountain. Yes. I mean, it's, it's gotta be a family affair. And guess what? If, if the powder day, when I want a big powder day, maybe my wife doesn't like powder. Right. What are you going to do? Right. I still need my fix. She needs her spa time or whatever. But I, I think what we got out of this is that the professionals like Kim, it stops being about the skiing. It starts to become more about giving other people the passion towards what she grew up in. Right. And it was, yeah, the way she speaks, she's not talking about specifically getting these skiers to be better. She's talking about having them have a better experience. And that may, that may involve you learning a new trip trick or two or figuring out a new way to, to, to tackle the bumps or the trees or, or whatever it may be. She does seem to love the fact that she's bringing this experience to people. And I mean, tremendously, the way that she follows the snow. I mean, I'm jealous. I'm totally jealous that her job is to follow the snow around the world. It's remarkable. And it, it seems like to, to become a part of that and to join her up on, on some of these trips would be a really valuable experience. Well, to the Wilbur kids, okay, to <laughs> yes. the Wilbur kids, uh, dad off, off mic here told me point blank that there's going to be a little extra Christmas gift under the tree. The family's going to Japan since there's some spots open. He's a podcast star. He's making the billions. That's right. I just I can't comment on that though because of the particulars, and I don't want to really let it be known too much, and I don't I can't reveal too much. So we got to keep that quiet, Mike. Okay. But no, not in jest here. There are still available spots with Kim if anybody's looking for an incredible experience with an incredible person. I would suggest pulling up her website. And if you can fit in, if somebody's looking for somewhere to go this year, didn't know where to go, take a look at it because skiing with Kim for a week would be a lot of fun. It sure would. That's all I got. You got anything else? No, I don't. I It's Christmas time. It's ski season. Enjoy it, folks. Exactly. That's it for this show of the New England Ski Journal's Basecamp podcast. I'm Eric Wolber. Thank you to my co-host, Mike Spiechen, and we will see you next time. Same place, same channel. Bye. New England Ski Journal's Basecamp is a Siemens Media podcast. Siemens Media, inspiring, informative, insightful.